1996 when we did this series originally. That was the quintessential spiritual seeking song by the Indigo Girls. Closer I am to find this idea that, wow, there's all these different options. And you notice the conclusion is to maybe throw your hands up and say, well, I'm just going to not believe in anything definitive. We're going to look into those issues today. Before we go any deeper into that, though, we're going to dismiss our children to their learning center. So the older children, kindergarten through fifth grade, your teachers are waiting for you right now in the education center. Well, once again, good morning, everyone. I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, Before we go any further, let's pause for a second and let's pray. God, we cannot come to the grand question of the universe. What is the meaning behind it all? What is ultimate reality? Where are we headed without needing some help? So we're looking for it, and we're trusting one thing. We're trusting Jesus when he said, ask and seek and knock. And that means we're going to trust that you want to be revealed, that you're not going to play your cards close to your vest, but that you're hungry for us to know you and for us to be known by you. So with that kind of confidence, God, we approach the large questions of the universe, asking for illumination. We pray that you'd give it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so um, John and I are looking into buying a TV. And the cool thing about that is I don't think there's been a better time for us to be in the market. The TV market right now is a consumer's paradise. I don't know if you checked this out, but I mean, first of all, for starters, there's like a million brands out there, right? I mean... Which one are we going to choose from? Magnavox, Samsung, Vizio, Insignia, Sony. I could go on and on and on. And secondly, because of all the competition, the prices are really amazing. Okay? So a 50-inch flat-screen TV today will cost me half of this behemoth that I bought 12 years ago, a 32-inch tube TV that weighed 150 pounds. I think I paid by the pound. I, I, I'm, I'm serious. I think I broke my back putting it up over my fireplace, scratched the whole thing up on the first day I bought it. And so um, for half the price, I can get a TV twice as big. It's awesome. So we Americans were expert consumers, and we love a situation like this where all the competition drives the prices down, and basically you can't make a bad choice. It's no wonder then I noticed that we love to bring the consumer mindset that we have into religion and we love to kind of say to ourselves well all faiths might be like all televisions they all work they're all good brands you can't make a wrong choice just pick one just pick a religion the other thing about us is that we tend to be competitive about options don't we we want the right options on the thing we're going to buy and we don't want to settle for something that doesn't have just the right options we bring that into religion too Because if the particular religious system we're thinking about doesn't have the right options, we hack off a few and we'll import a few from another religion, creating our own smorgasbord-style religion and just carry it in our little basket right here, our own personal religion. So that's us as spiritual consumers. And if you're in that camp where one religion might be just the same as the next, we're what we might call a religious pluralist. Fancy word, but I think you get what it means. A religious pluralist. Just to be sure, though, let's define our terms. Uh, There's different ways people throw around the word pluralism. There is factual religious pluralism, which just simply means there is a plurality of religions in the world. And that seems to be obviously true, doesn't it? But also people use the word pluralism when they're talking about a legal thing. There's legal religious pluralism. And what they mean by that is they say, well, America is a religiously pluralistic society. They mean people should have the right 
to worship however they want. They should have the right to choose whatever uh, religion that they want. And that's a, a, another way we use the term. Now, here's a third way. There is philosophical religious pluralism, a totally different idea. Philosophical religious pluralism means that all religions are equally true. All religious claims have equal right to be called knowledge. And this is the definition that we're going to be working with for today. The first two, as a Christian, you should just take for granted. That there, yes, are many paths. And secondly, that people should have the right to practice whatever religion they want. It's an enshrined value. It really comes um, uh, out of the West and out of Christian tradition. People should have religious freedom. But let's look at this whole other idea of philosophical pluralism, because what is that? It's like this, it's this open-minded idea that says that religions are like TV brands, and they all meet a need, they all work, and so in that sense, they're all equally valid paths to God, slash enlightenment, slash nirvana, slash heaven, whatever. Now, what's the opposite? Okay, if that's what a pluralist is, what is the opposite? The opposite of being a pluralist is if you're a religious exclusivist. Now, what does that mean? Well, an exclusivist approaches the religion question kind of like you might approach a scientific problem or a math problem. The exclusivist looks at the religion question like, I need to find, there's a bunch of different paths, but only one is going to correspond to reality. And the ones that are opposite of that don't. And the job of the spiritual seeker is to find the path that corresponds to reality. The assumption here is that God is just whatever God is. And God's not changing. Like He's not changing for you because of what you want God to be. And he's not changing for me, what, what God wants, uh, what I want God to be. Our job is just to figure out this independent, objective reality of God. That's the job of the spiritual seeker. So for the exclusivist, uh, your job is to find true ideas, reject false ideas through reason and testing and careful investigation. And you kind of would find yourself a bit in Jesus' words, which we've got here on my left, your right. Ask seek and knock the assumption is is that if we do this when we do the asking and the seeking and the knocking that this will lead to salvation or god or the ultimate good whatever that is even if the ultimate good is not the greatest short-term good and that's important for the exclusivist you see they're interested in truth more than pragmatism i've got that line up on the screen the, the exclusivist is more interested in the truth than in pragmatic, does it work, or, or does it feel good, or does it benefit me? That's pragmatism, right? The exclusivist is less interested in that than they are in just, just show me the truth. Now, for the pluralist, let's evaluate this. For the pluralist, there's, they, they look down the nose a little bit at the exclusivist. They believe that there are many uh, ways to God, and there's all sorts of benefits of looking at life this way, they will tell us. They see that all religions help people. All religions help people to cope. All religions help people to do good. So they feel no pressure to find the objective truth in any religion. Why would you? If Zen meditation helps you uh, focus and uh, brings you tranquility, that's true. If Jewish traditions brings your family together, that's true. So there's no need to find objective truth in all of this. And the pluralist then will say, if everyone just respected everybody else's choices for what works for them, Sanyo versus Toshiba, then conflict would disappear, arrogance would go away, and social harmony would ensue, and we'd have the age of Aquarius. The strong assumption in pluralism is that exclusivism automatically leads to or comes from arrogance 
and brings intolerance, and they won't always say this, but they will often imply it, is behind all of the violence in our world today. Religious exclusivism is behind all of the violence in our world today. How can it not be that way? Well, before we just assume that pluralism with all those benefits, uh, that open-mindedness makes the most sense, let's ask ourselves what Jesus thought. Now, this matters no matter what uh, a philosophical or religious position you're starting from, because if you paid any attention, all religious frames of mind think Jesus was really cool. Have you noticed that? Buddhism considers him to be an exalted master. So does Hinduism. In uh, Judaism, this wasn't always the case, but they have now come to accept Jesus as a wise rabbi. And of course, he's seen as a Messiah in Christianity, and he's seen as a prophet in Islam. So he's pretty cool. Everybody thinks Jesus is cool. So his opinion should matter on this exclusivist, pluralist controversy. What did he think? Well, let's read a few things that he said to find out. First thing, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. So here's what Jesus said. He comes out of the gate in his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Let's pause here for a second. Let's examine this, because you look at those first five words. I tell you the truth. That's actually, if you can believe it, it's one word in the original language. And that word is a transliteration of an old Hebrew word, amen. Amen. What does it mean? Amen means uh, sure or certain or trustworthy. And it transliterates into the English as amen. You say it at the end of your prayers. When you say amen, you're quoting Jesus who began. He didn't, he didn't end his statements this way. He would begin his statements with that word. Amen or amen. Sometimes he would use it twice. And that's why in your King James Version Bible, very often you hear Jesus saying verily, verily. And you're going, that is just really weird. That's the best way they translated that word. Amen, amen. Now, what does that mean? Well, the first thing is, is basically what Jesus is saying is what follows. The, the statement that will follow, you can just take it to the bank. The thing I'm telling you next is true. It's trustworthy. It's sure. It's firm. It's solid. You can trust it. Okay? Amen, amen. And when he says it twice, then he's really telling you. I'm telling you what follows, you can take to the bank. So now ask yourself how that kind of fits into pluralism, exclusivism. What's he sounding like there? Is he sounding like truth is sort of the subjective thing and the more, like our song was, the more I'm just leaving things indefinite, the closer I am to find. Now that's not really how Jesus is talking here, is it? It's like, find the truth. Truth matters. Amen, amen. Second thing he's telling us in this particular passage is that, that when you go to the law and the prophets, you will find true statements there that you can also consider to be firm and trustworthy. And some of you have ever uh, wondered why Christians still hang on to this ancient book, the Bible. Why do you hang on to this crazy book? It's old. Its newest parts are 2,000 years old. How relevant can this thing be? Well, we trust Jesus who said you can trust this book. He's endorsing it. Now, here's the second thing he says. John chapter 18, verse 37, I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, semicolon. Okay, so now pause for a second and go, wow, what follows next is like his mission, right? It's like really central. I was born for this. I came into the world for this. What was it? To testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. So how does Jesus look at truth? Is truth to him what works for you? Is truth to him what benefits you? Is truth to him what feels good to you? Or is truth sort of a black and white, sort of lying in the sand thing, and your job is to get on the side, one side? 
And oh, by the way, he's on that side, the side of the truth. See, for Jesus, truth is not about everybody being right and not taking sides. It's kind of the opposite. For Jesus, the truth is about taking sides, not about not taking sides. Now, look at the context. This is fascinating. Jesus says these words to a powerful civil leader. He happens to be Pontius Pilate, a Roman, a Roman procurator, a, a, a Roman leader uh, ruling Palestine at the time. Pilate, you know him as the guy who sends Jesus to death, but he's, all, he's a Roman. And so here's what you can assume about him. As a Roman, you can assume that he was a pluralist. Why? Because Romans had a pantheon of gods. And in fact, they were so successful at keeping an empire together is because they would enfold you and your culture and your religion. And they'd say, bring your religion on in. All you got to do is just add the Roman emperor worship to your pantheon of gods and you're in the club. So that's how Rome held their, held, held their empire together is through pluralism. And, uh, of course, the Jews and later Christians obstinately refused that condition. And that's why they were a thorn in the side of Rome all the way. But nevertheless, we can assume that, Rome, or, uh, that Pilate was a pluralist. And so when Jesus says this to him, for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth, here's what Pilate says. What is truth? What a line. I mean, it's just packed with meaning, right? It's packed with a skepticism, isn't it? What is truth? Question mark. That's how a pluralist looks at truth. Well, what is truth? I mean, finally, what is truth? It's like looking at things that are beautiful. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's like preferring green over red. It's like preferring the sharp TV to a Hitachi. What is truth? You know, just, just pick away. But there's more. Here's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, one of his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so now here Jesus turns from the issue of truth to the issue of salvation, like they're connected somehow. Somehow the issue of finding objective reality about God is connected to saving, to being saved, to finding your way to God, right? Now, religions all paint salvation in different kinds of terms, but we all know that they present themselves as an answer to the human predicament. Now, ask yourself this question. Does Jesus think that there's a whole bunch of ways to fix the human predicament? From this verse, no. The answer is no. He doesn't think there's a bunch of ways to fix the human predicament. Here he's talking like an exclusivist, not like a pluralist. So if Jesus' opinion matters to you, and I'm sure it does for many people in this room as Christians, some of you are investigating or seeking, and Jesus' opinion still matters to you because you know, he matters to all religious streams. So if it matters to you, you should know that Jesus' outlook was exclusivist, not pluralist. So uh, for that reason, we should maybe then take a look at these pluralistic criticisms of exclusivism to see if they hold water. What's the first one? Remember, we already said it. The pluralist says that exclusivism is bad because it's automatically arrogant and it's automatically intolerant. Let's look at that. Is that true? Let's imagine an exclusivist and a pluralist. The exclusivist, let's say his name is John and he's a Muslim because they're exclusivists like Christians are. And then Jane is a pluralist and they're having a conversation and they're talking together. And so Jane says to John, John, you say all these other religions are wrong and your religion are right. But with all these other options in front of you, how could you possibly know it to be true? Your certainty makes you arrogant and intolerant. Okay, that's Jane. 
Now, maybe you've actually heard that. You might have heard that said to you if you're an exclusivist by some of your pluralistic friends. And at first it sounds like, yeah, you're kinda, you feel shamed a little bit. You go, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of narrow. I'm, I'm, a, I'm mean. I, I guess I'm a mean-spirited person. But now think about what Jane has just said for two seconds, and you'll realize that that whole thing explodes. See, Jane is making a very bold claim to know something, isn't she? Her adamance that John is off base is telling us that she thinks uh, she knows something. She is claiming something about God. What is she claiming to know about God? She's claiming to know that God is infinitely adaptable to a million, million different approaches. Right? She's making that claim to knowledge. Now, I don't resent her making that claim because she might be right. Maybe God is like that. Maybe God doesn't care how you think or act or, or behave or believe. Like, maybe that's just the way God is. But the pluralist is claiming to know God is like that for certain, meanwhile telling us that there's nothing we can know about God for sure. You can see the inconsistency, right? We can't know anything about God, but, but this whole exclusive way that you've got going on, that's, that's really wrong. Well, that, well, I know that's wrong. Well, how, how do you know that that's wrong? See, if John wanted to, he could kind of come back at Jane a little bit and say, but Jane, you think that all religions are equally valid ways, and so you are intolerant of us exclusivists saying that we're wrong. How arrogant and intolerant. I mean, he could say that, couldn't he? He sure could. See, AC3, we have to think about this claim. It's really a bogus claim that anybody who thinks they're in possession of something that's true is automatically arrogant and automatically intolerant. If that's so, then everybody's arrogant and intolerant. Why? Well, all of us have the opinions that we do, and we hold them precisely because we think they're right. Why else do you hold the opinions that you do? You hold your opinions because you came to them through investigation and and, and, and through thinking about them, and, and rationality says that these opinions that you hold are right, therefore the opposite convictions are by necessity wrong. It's just, just the way it is. You're, you're, you're not being a jerk. It's just the way it is. And so um, uh, conviction, holding our beliefs because we think that they are right and opposite beliefs are wrong, that's, just, that's, that's not arrogant. That, that's just rational. AC3, listen. Arrogance and intolerance is not about the views that you hold. It's about how you hold them. Arrogance and intolerance is not about disagreeing with others. Everybody does that. It's about how you disagree with others. Okay, so that's the first claim, arrogance and intolerance. I think it really, we explode it. It's really about how one holds the beliefs that one holds. Because everybody, even the pluralist, has claims to knowledge look at the second thing though the second thing was that exclusivism denies this truth that all religions are somehow at some fundamental uh, level the same that's what the pluralist thinks so let's examine that for a second is that true the pluralist will say okay sure you can easily point to superficial differences like for example christianity is a cross and uh, uh islam has the crescent moon um uh, jews have the ten commandments uh, Buddhists have the eightfold path. But they say, look, if you're just focusing on that, you're missing the deeper truth. All religions at heart, at the fundamental level, are really just one and the same way to God or enlightenment. Now, backing up this argument is usually a parable, a metaphor. And I'm, I'm, I want to tease it out because it's so convincing on first blush. It's the parable of the blind men and the elephant. So you ever seen something like this? 
The parable of the blind men and the elephant. So imagine, they say, when you start to push back on pluralism, they say, no, 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 you understand. It's like this. Religion is like this. It's like a bunch of blind men walking around an elephant, groping it, touching it, and describing what they feel. Now imagine they start to describe this huge creature from one end to the other. The descriptions would be wildly different. One would describe what felt like a big, rough-skinned, hairy python. Well, really, he's touching the trunk, right? The other one would say, no, 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 that's not what an elephant is. An elephant is a large, flat, veiny surface. And, of course, what he's touching is the ear. The other blind man says, no, 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 that's not what an elephant is. An elephant is a very large duster. And, of course, he's got his hand on the tail, right? The final man says, no, 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 you're all wrong. The elephant is a tree trunk, big, round, and smooth, and thick. And he will be touching one of the legs. Now, none of these descriptions would be the same, and yet you would all be talking about one and the same elephant. Just like that, the pluralist says, all the different religious groups of the world, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, they are all experiencing the same God. They're just emphasizing a different part. But really, it's the same ultimate reality. Now, let's talk about this, because it, it, it seems convincing, doesn't it, at first blush, but, but there's really a fatal problem with the elephant parable. And here's what it is. The first is that it goes back to the John and Jane issue of arrogance. Remember back then when we were talking about John and Jane, and we realized that, that Jane was actually no less a believer in an exclusive point of view, right? She had an exclusive point of view. She just wasn't acknowledging it. If you didn't hold to her pluralism, what she was really saying is, you're wrong. Right? So she had an exclusivist position, and in that sense was just as arrogant as this other guy. But let's consider what this elephant metaphor is really saying from the position of the person who's offering it to you. So let's imagine John and Jane again. And Jane throws this out there to John, our religious exclusivist. And she says, this is what religion is like right here. And John says, okay, well, that's an interesting way to look at religion, Jane. So where do you think I am in this picture, Jane? Where am I in this picture? And she says, oh, well, you're like, uh, let's say you're that first guy right there. You're Muslim. And you're just groping around, and you're kind of seeing part of the ultimate but only a part. And let's say the other guy, the guy in the blue suit, let, let's say he's a Hindu, and, and he sees another part. He's just seeing part of the ultimate, um, and that's the picture. All right, John says, so I'm this blind man right here. Yeah, she says, we're all blind. So John says, all right, so, so where are you in this picture? What, says Jane? Well, like, where, where are you? Which blind man are you? Like, how does your pluralist ideology fit into the parable of the elephant? Oh, uh, Jane, now she's stumbling a bit. She's fumbling for words. Uh, well, I'm saying we're all blind, but we touch parts, so all our religions are good but imperfect, and so we need to not say that any other is wrong. And John says, no, Jane, that's not what you're saying. You're not saying all religions are blind. You're saying all religions are blind except one. What, says Jane? Well, if we're all blind, uh, John says, there would be no way to ever know that this is the bigger picture, right? I mean, if we're all just blind men groping around in the dark and we don't really know that we're actually touching the same thing, then how do we know that we're touching the same thing? There has to be one person, one person who sees the big picture for what it really is, that we're actually touching the same thing. Aren't you saying you're that person, Jane? Well, I, um, yeah, and now she sees the problem. She sees the arrogance of the position of the person who's putting forward the elephant parable. To put forward the parable, you have to believe that there's somebody who's not blind. 
There's got to be somebody who sees. Who sees? In this parable, the part of the seeing person shall be played by the religious pluralist. And that's how the religious pluralist must see the situation. What John has pointed out is this fatal flaw in the elephant parable. While it tries to get us to be humble about religion, it actually comes from a really arrogant perspective. It comes from the perspective that says, hey, listen, tut tut, little little Christian, little Jew, little Muslim, little Buddhist, little Hindu. So, so okay, you're doing really good on your own over there. But let me tell you how it really is. And you can see there's a tremendous arrogance in this. When you hear the elephant metaphor, the person giving it stars in the role as the only person who sees, the only person who knows that all religions are really fundamentally the same. So when someone talks to you about this and throws that parable out there, a good question to ask would be something like this. How do you know that? I mean, how do you know that about God? Maybe, now listen, maybe they have good reasons to believe that, but if they do, certainly they're no less arrogant because not only have they uh, said that they have certain truths that they have access to about God, they're maybe even a little bit more arrogant because they're saying the truth they have about God trumps all of your truth. And it doesn't matter what perspective you're coming from, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, whatever. In that sense, the person putting forward the analogy might actually be coming from a much more superior position of all religion. And this is a stunning claim to knowledge. All right, so if we can agree that maybe it's hypocritical to throw out the elephant analogy, let's just evaluate the claim. Because maybe there's reason to believe. Maybe there's reason to believe that somehow, in some fundamental way, that the religions are all somehow the same. If the person at the trunk and the person at the tail are really touching the same animal, then perhaps we should note that there should be commonality in their descriptions, even if there's superficial differences. So let's just keep going with the metaphor, okay? Let's keep playing the elephant metaphor out. So, yeah, let's imagine they're describing wildly different things, but shouldn't, if, it, if they're all touching an elephant, shouldn't there be some commonality, for example, in the texture of the skin that they're touching? Shouldn't there be some commonality in the density of the hair, the same body temperature, the same heartbeat? Right? Even if they're blind, there should be some commonality along all of these different uh, avenues. So what we should be looking for, if a pluralism is true, to confirm the theory is superficial differences, fundamental similarities. That's what we should be looking for. And is that what we find? Now, I invite you to look into this. I mean, I've had to look into this. I, I'm curious about this. I'm curious about most things. As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus, I kind of have to know what the competition says, don't I? So I've looked into this myself. And I ask myself the question, when, I, when you evaluate the different parts of the elephant, is that what you find is superficial differences but fundamental similarities? No, in fact, you find the exact opposite. You find the exact opposite. What you find is similar uh, agreements at the superficial level. So, for example, like ethical uh, baround, uh, parameters and boundaries and religious uh, practices, that's similar across different religious lines. But fundamentally at the level of teachings about God and people and salvation, gross and irreconcilable differences. I'll just give you a few examples. Buddhism and Judaism both have rules about truth-telling. Did you know that? Step four in the Buddhist eightfold path is called perfect um, speech. Perfect speech, which would include not telling lies. Well, commandment number nine, if you've looked over the Mosaic commandments, uh, also is all about not giving false witness. Don't lie. Okay, so that's at the superficial level, but let's go deeper and talk about their view of God. 
Judaism is absolutely clear about one thing. What is it? Monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. I mean, they're rabid about monotheism. And this God exists independent of his creation. If the creation went away, God would still exist. God is self-existent. God is personal. God is holy. God is loving. God is true. That is the Judaistic view of the ultimate. But the Buddhist, if, I don't know if you know this, but Buddhism is the one world religion that is absolutely ambivalent about the existence of God. Doesn't really care. Doesn't talk about the question at all. Because in Buddhism, the closer you get to the real, the less you talk about things like personal and true and all that stuff. That's mumbo-jumbo in Buddhism. In Buddhism, the closer you get to real, the less you talk about different gods. There's no personality. There's no right and wrong. The closer you get to what's real in Buddhism, the less all those distinctions matter and you all fade away into the all. And thus we call it monism. Everything is mono. Everything is part of the one essence. Well, these are irreconcilable differences about what God is. I mean, they just, you, you can't even begin to put them together. There's no way. In Islam, uh, you have almsgiving. In Christianity, you also have the discipline of helping and giving to the poor. Uh, major difference is that uh, in Islam, it's one-fortieth of your income, and in, and in Christianity and Judaism, it's one-tenth. So there's a difference. So you guys think that's not funny? I mean, I thought that was hilarious when I, when I thought about that. Like I'm selling Islam to you. Okay, so, so anyhow, so superficial similarities, you know, almsgiving and giving to the poor, that's all similar across those two religious lines. But look at their view of God. In Islam, it sees God as like totally transcendent and other. Untouchable. Never defile himself with his own creation. Allah is fully and totally sovereign and in control. And here's the word, transcendent. Well, in Christianity, God is also transcendent, but God gives freedom inside his creation, and he also enfleshes himself. It's a creation-affirming religion, so much so that God decides to enflesh himself in human skin. And that probably is the worst thing that you can imagine if you're a Muslim. That is probably the worst heresy. It's the worst thing you could say about God, is to say that he would enflesh himself and stoop to this level. I went to Nazareth seven years ago. And Nazareth is dominated by Muslims. But there's Christians there. And by the way, Nazareth has a bunch of different churches. One of them is the Church of Mary, where you know, supposedly Mary got the news from the angel that she was going to bear a son. And uh, so there's a great big Catholic church, but the community around it's all Muslim. So you can't get to that church and worship Jesus as the Son of God without going underneath a banner put up by the local Muslims, which says, Allah has no sons. I mean, it's just adamant in that Muslim culture. This is an irreconcilable difference. I mean, you can start looking deep. You find that you take the religion seriously. There's all sorts of irreconcilable claims at the grassroots, at the fundamental level. For example, what is the spiritual quest? The religions don't even agree on that. What is the spiritual quest? Is it getting in touch with God, as in Christianity and Judaism? Or is it losing touch with yourself, as in Hinduism and Buddhism? What is God like? Uh, they don't agree on that either. Is it personal as in Islam? Or is it impersonal as in Buddhism? More like a force or an energy that exudes from all living things like the Star Wars, the force. What is the predicament that religion helps you overcome? Is it ignorance of your inherent deity as in Hinduism? Or is it trying to become God and thus committing moral sin as in Judaism? Now there's an irreconcilable difference. One religion says, here's your problem. Is it your God? and you don't know it. And the other religion says, here's your problem. You think you're God. I mean, these are irreconcilable differences. 
The point is this. To say that all religions are the same, AC3, is to deny terribly fundamental, terribly irreconcilable differences, and it's disrespectful to that religion. When you sit there and say, you know, I think we could maybe sew these things together into a great big elephant, and, you know, we just have to hack off this little piece of Islam here and cut off this branch of Christianity, and then we'll sew this Frankenstein together. That is totally disrespectful. If we brought in a Muslim here, we'd say, what are your beliefs? Tell us what they are. And we'd say, no, 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 you know what we're going to do? We're going to edit your religion so we can sew it onto this other one and make it all the same. I mean, that's offensive to him. It would be offensive to me if you tried to do it with my religion. I, I feel like you were an imperialist, like you were taking over and planting your flag. Friends, it's disrespectful, and it's deeply blind because it ignores the fundamental differences, differences in their assessments of the human predicament, differences in their view of God, and differences, most importantly, in their ways to get back to God, back to the ultimate, back to the ultimate good. Speaking of that, by the way, this is where Christianity stands out different as night versus day with all the other religious systems of the world in how it presents the solution to the human predicament. The uniqueness of Christianity in, in its way back to God as a way of grace, now that doesn't make it right, but it does make it different. It makes it unique. And listen, think about it. If exclusivism is true, what would you expect to find? If exclusivism is true, you would expect to find one of these religious systems, there might be something inside it that was unique that would justify it as being an only way like an only way to solve an, a, a unique problem, a unique way to solve a unique problem. Now, if none of them stand out on any, in any way, then uh, the argument probably is strong for pluralism. But if one stands out, there's a reason to think it might be on to something. And so I wrap with this. In Christianity, the problem of humanity is uniquely bad. I don't know if you knew that. You know, you think Christianity, a gospel of grace, and it's all about love and mercy, but actually the bad news in Christianity is worse than the bad news in any other religion. You know why? Because in Christianity, um, there is no help or no, no hope for you to be able to fix yourself. In every other religious system, uh, you are certainly considered to be um, committing of certain sins. Uh, or in Hinduism, you're ignorant. That's probably your great sin. And we suffer for our ignorance or we suffer for our actions. But we're fixable. In all these systems, they are bootstrap philosophies. That is, you pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. And the way to be fixed varies in all these different systems, but it involves essentially an exchange. For good deeds, for good actions, for good rituals, for good practices, you will be owed. And then insert nirvana, paradise, blessing, heaven. It's sort of a fee-for-service kind of thing. It's a contract. Now, Christianity is unique in that it rejects the contract view. It just says, impossible. It's a non-starter. You can't fix yourself. Your predicament is worse in Christianity than any other system. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's as impossible physically as it is spiritually. That's what Christianity says. But for that reason, its good news is all the sweeter because it offers a covenant in place of this contract. You do something, God owes you something. Instead, we have this covenant idea where I enter into, by trust, a mutual, faithful, permanent, loving relationship with a personal God. In the Christian system, love is a gift. It can't be earned. Now, of course, being in love leads to loving behaviors. And those loving behaviors in Christianity will mirror, in some ways at least, the behaviors of other religious systems. 
But this is no contractual affair, friends. It's a relationship through and through. And like any relationship, I, I enter into it in an act of commitment and trust. The Christian hears the words of Jesus and it rings in their ears as completely distinct from all religious systems when he says, lose your life for my sake and you will find it. And it's like an abandonment. It's like he's not saying, okay, once you've done these 10 things, then you're in. He's saying, jump. Lose yourself and you will find life. Or as the Apostle Paul will put it, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This grace is unique, friends, in all the religious systems of the world. It's, it's utterly unique. That your right standing before God, heaven, nirvana, bliss, however you want to finally define it, is accessible and only accessible as a gift. That's good news. But there's a lot of put-together people in this world to whom that sounds like foolishness. It sounds like bad news because there's a pride-crushing humility that it uh, pushes onto you. I mean, are you going to be the one who will come to God with poverty of spirit and say, I can't fix myself? I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps no matter how religious I am, no matter how moral I am, that can't get done? Will you be the one who says finally, I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to lose my claim to goodness. I'm going to lose my claim to be pridefully say, I am something in the eyes of God. And you just lose all that. You lose your standing in the community and just say, this is who I am. And throw yourself on the mercy of God. And there with a wild hope that you may just find grace and love in heaven with your name written on it. Listen, friends, because all the religious systems of the world are so very different, um, they could all be wrong. But because they're so different, there's no way that they could all be right. That is not a rational position to hold. But there is one of these amongst all the systems where, as Keith Green found out, the great uh, Christian musician who died tragically young uh, in the early 80s said, what I found out was that uh, other religions were about what we do for God and suddenly I find out that there's a religion that talks about what God has done for us. And friends, if that's true, then maybe you can begin to change your perspective on this thing. And you've been skeptical about the whole truth equation. And today you can say, no, I'm not going to be skeptical. I'm going to put on the mantle of a seeker believing that the truth can be found. And I'm going to believe, Jesus, that anyone on the side of truth is going to find themselves on his side sooner or later. And I pray that that will be you. Now let's pray together. God in heaven, you are what you are. And you're not changing, not for my desires or whims, not for my friends or my neighbors. And so we put on our seeker hat and we go looking, we go asking and seeking and knocking. And here we find in Jesus a completely, wildly unique thing. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh God, may we find this rest in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we only be willing to abandon pride here and now and today lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, I cannot pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And for every humble soul in this room who would dare to be so humble and to come to you poverty-stricken in spirit, we know through Jesus the promise is the kingdom of heaven is there.
And may we leave this place today with that kind of indomitable hope in a world of working and working and working. We would find our satisfaction in you. And God, may we live like this, people whose hearts are at ease and have found the peace and the joy and the hope of the gospel. I thank you for providing it to us, Lord, free of charge. In Jesus, amen.